Hello and welcome to OU's Nach Yomi. You can find this year posted at ouradio.org/nach or on my website ericlevy.com under the recording section. Hi, this is Rabbi Eric Levy, and I am pleased to bring to you Chapter 40 of the Book of Eov. After God's speech in chapters 38 and 39, God begins this chapter by asking Eov a question. Uh, the verse is very difficult, but based on Eov's response, um, I'm sort of compelled to translate the verse in the sense that God is asking Eov why he didn't speak in response to God's uh, points in chapter 38 and 39, as God apparently was expecting him to do. Vayan Adonai et vayomar harov im shadai yisor mochiach eloah ya'anena. And God responded to Eov and said, Will the one who took up dispute with Shaddai, will he speak words of discipline? Will the one who argues or rebukes God, will he answer it? Meaning, will he answer God's assertions? Notice that God is using the legal terms that uh, Eov himself introduced at the beginning of his speeches. So God is saying, you asked for a trial and I gave you my... Uh, viewpoint. So where's your response? This is admittedly not the most straightforward translation of this difficult verse, which almost seems like God is trying to quiet uh, Eov. Uh, nonetheless, based on Eov's answer, it works much better. Vayan Eov et Adonai vayomar hein kaloti ma'ashiveka yadi samti lemofi achat dibarti velo e'ene ushtayim velo osif. And Eov responded to God and said, Behold, I am disgraceful or perhaps insignificant. What can I respond to you? I placed my hand to my mouth. I spoke once, meaning I spoke once already. I won't respond. I spoke twice and I will continue no more. This is a play on Elihu saying that God speaks in one way, meaning in visions, and then in a second way with physical discipline. So Eov is essentially saying that, yeah, I realize from your first speech that I'm nothingness and compared to you, um, and therefore I'm going to silence myself. The word kaloti from the word kal means light, uh, and is the opposite of kaved or kavod, something with weighty or, or deserving of respect. So the important point to note here is that Eov is not agreeing with God's arguments. He's What he is agreeing is that he has no right as a human to argue his case against God. But he is not saying that he doesn't have what to respond. He's just saying that he doesn't deserve to respond. So it's up to God to take up the argument and to move it to the next level with another speech that will start now in verse 6. Again, from the storm, the whirlwind, meaning that once again we have a transcendental transfer of God's knowledge down to earth prophetically and into Eov's ears. Vayan Adunai at Eov min sa'ara vayomar ezor nach gever chalatzecha eshalcha now gird your hips like a man or like a hero and I will ask you questions and you will inform me. Again, God is essentially demanding that Eov give answer. And after the first speech where he said the same thing, Eov didn't say anything, which is why God said, hey, how come you're not saying anything? And Eov said, because I'm, I'm, I'm too lowly to say something. Um, now, while God does not, like at the beginning of his last speech, accuse Eov of obscuring wisdom with his words, especially because Eov didn't speak here, he does accuse Eov of vilifying God for the wrong reason, that is, simply to justify himself. With me, which means, rather than trying to solve the problems and perplexities of, of theodicy, Eov was simply focusing on turning God into the bad guy in order so that Eov could look good. Ha'af tafer mishpati tashi'eni lemai 
Man Tzitzdak? Will you even undermine my justice or my being recognized as just? Will you vilify me in order to make yourself righteous? Starting with the next verse, verse 9, what, what, what seems to anger God um, is that Eov is in no position to replace God as caretaker to the world. And therefore, since God is responsible for the whole world, then only he is able to really make sure that the wicked and the haughty get what's coming to them. Then how can Eov uh, accuse him when he's not in the position to match God's deeds? If you have an arm, which means the strength equal to God's, and if you can trumpet out with a voice equal to his, then adorn yourself now in exaltation, being high or being transcendent, and dress yourself in majesty and in splendor. And what does God do with all of these four attributes, with Gaon and Gova? And Hod and Hadar, it's not for show, but God says what Eov should try to do with it, if he could manage to put on these type of clothes, if he could act like God. Lay about with your heated anger. The word Evra means anger, unless it's speaking of... Um, no, probably the best translation is to say to to scatter about with your massive anger. Identify every haughty thing. That is, you have to notice every single last item which deserves punishment. You have to bring them down. The haughty refers, no doubt, of course, to the wicked people, as well as to things which God mentioned before, which was these elements of nature that threaten civilization with their chaotic force. I'm leaving out the third possibility, which is the Kabbalistic possibility, that of supernatural creatures which somehow fight out against God and God must bind them up. Um, I'm not much of a Kabbalist, to be honest, plus uh, that kind of mystical approach can sometimes lead to all kinds of misunderstandings about the nature of God, in my humble opinion. So I'll, um, if, if you want to, the Ramban hints it to a little bit. There are other Kabbalistic explanations. You can find plenty of literature on it. But I'll stick really to the first two perspectives. Identify, that is, you must be able to see every single haughty thing and subdue them. That's a step beyond them. Not just bring them down, but bring them under control. You must destroy the wicked. In Bemidbar, the verb hadoch uh, is used regarding the grinding of the man. Um, bury all of their faces in the dust, restrain them in concealed places. God says, essentially, that if Eov can, can assume God's powers, now, again, whether you're reading God is sarcastic because he knows that Eov could do no such thing, or if he's being educational and he's trying to explain to Eov that he can't, that's up to you to read the mood of God. But God's saying that since Eov if Eov could assume God's powers, if he could take over God's tough job, then, that is, if you can make the, your right hand be your own salvation, or the salvation of others, I will praise you. The word Tehillim often uses that idea of God's right hand being uh, uh, the hand of salvation. So if Eov could do any of this, God will happily praise him, he'll thank him, he'll recognize his right to decide what is right and wrong in this world. But until God can do any of those things until God can destroy, until Eov can control and subdue all of the massively powerful negative forces in the world, then he's not on the level to challenge everything that God does. Now, from verse 15 through the end of the speech in the next chapter, in chapter 41, God is going to focus on two creatures, the behemoth, 
and the Leviathan. The surface level meaning is perhaps that if Eop is impressed by the animal uh, uh, parade that was brought over in the last speech, then God will focus on these two mightiest of creatures in the animal world. One is the peaceful creature in spite of its unparalleled strength, and the other is a source of fear and awe and, in fact, death. Um... It, it, the other way to understand it on the on the surface level meaning is the way the Ramban explains it, which is, I'm going to tell you that you have to, in order for you to play God, you have to be able to control all of these powerful, haughty forces. And, and, and let me show you that not only can't you do that, but if we bring it down a level and just talk about the mightiest of the, of the natural animals, even those you are not able to control. So how do you expect to control anything else? Also, uh, just to translate the behemoth, uh, um, that is, it's usually translated as the hippopotamus, a massive uh, uh, mammal, and the leviathan, uh, which, based on the descriptions of the coming two chapters, can either be a crocodile or a whale, because the descriptions seem to go back and forth between either of them, although the sense is a sea creature of unsurpassed uh, power. On a mystical level, these, so I am going to be a little Kabbalistic, um, these are the creatures that uh, that battle God in order to undermine his creation, and they themselves will be destroyed and eaten by the righteous at the beginning of the Messianic age. But of course, the real trick here is to understand the metaphor that is, what, what or whom do these creatures, based on the descriptions, represent? Um, and remember, a metaphor can have multiple levels of meaning, in addition to the literal, in addition to the surface level meaning. So let's just read the poetry and get a sense of what's being described here, and then maybe we could take some educated guesses as to what the behemoth uh, stands for, and therefore what message God is trying to convey to Eov. Hinei na behemot asher asiti imach hatsir kavakar yochel. Now it sounds like behemot means just animals in the plural, but it really means the behemoth, since, as you can see, the word yochel is the singular, he will eat, and all of the verbs upcoming are in the singular. It's not referring to multiple behemoths, but the the master of behemoths, the behemoth. Behold now the behemoth that I created when I created you. It eats vegetation like cattle, which is a surprise, because he That is... It is really an incredibly powerful animal. Translating, behold now its strength is in its loins, its power is in its muscled stomach. I think the message here is that in contrast between a creature endowed with unsurpassed strength, it is completely peaceful, an herbivore, which means not everything that shows ultimate power is necessarily, um, is necessarily destructive. The following verse uh, probably refers to the privates of the behemoth, and, and what metaphoric sense that's trying to convey is uh, up to you to, uh, to try to work out. But it indicates, I think, at the very least, its power in procreation and the ability for it to, to bear on to the next generation. Yachpotz z'navo chmo'arez gidei fachadav yisoragu. It raises its tail like a cedar tree. The sinews of its pachads are braided, um, which means they are strong and thick like cords. Um, the word tails and avo is is almost surely a, a very neutral, clean way of referring to uh, its uh, its uh, private parts. And pachadav is Aramaic for eshech, which are testicles. Atzamav um, kimtil barzel. Its limbs are like pipes of bronze. Its bones are like blocks of iron. There's no word for bronze actually in Hebrew, in in in, um, in ancient Hebrew. In modern Hebrew, we say bronza. 
Um, Nechoshet can be either in Tanakh, either copper or bronze. And in fact, um, they're really the same. Uh, copper, if you add a bit of tin for hardness, then it turns into uh, bronze, which of course is what's being referred to here because we're talking about the, the behemoth's strength. Hu reshit darche el hauso. It is the apex, or perhaps the first of God's way, meaning it was the greatest of all uh, the behemoth. It is the first of all the uh, the creatures that was create that was created. The one that created it, so Yagesh Charbo will deliver its sword or his sword. Meaning, perhaps it's a difficult verse, but perhaps it means for all of its peaceful nature, only its creator can destroy it. That is, if you come at it with a sword, you're going nowhere. You're going to get nowhere. Only God can destroy this first of His creations. Or you have to be the maker if you want to unmake things. That is, even though it eats from the vegetation of the mountains, which means it eats a massive amount, it wanders broad spaces to get its full, all the animals in the field, that is, all the wild animals, play there where it eats, meaning its eating is not aggressive. It may be massive, but it's not aggressive. It's so much so that other animals feel comfortable frolicking in its pastures. The word Bull, by the way, is short for yivul or produce. Tachat tseilim yishkab seiter kaneu vitsa. It lies down under the tseilim, which are some kind of brush that grows in the river valleys alongside the rivers. It lies down in the shelter of reeds and the mud. And that's why it seems clear that the behemoth here is the uh, is the um, hippopotamus. According to according to Ramban, though, there's no reason to specify that it's any great massive creature. So it might include elephants and and other massive mammals as well. Yisukuhu seilim silalo yisubuhu arve nachal. The seilim, these reeds, cover it with its shade. The river willows surround it. Arve nachal is like the kind of thing we use for a lulav. Hain yashok nahar lo yachpoz. Behold, it draws off from the river without being in a rush or in a hurry as the Jordan splashes in its mouth, which means it's this massive, confident uh, uh, creature that even when it's standing in the middle of the rushing rivers, it, uh, it can simply uh, lap up the water as if uh, as if um, it's uh, it's at calm waters in, in, instead. I think the next verse, verse 24, is also referring to the behemoth, although some commentators say that this verse is referring already to the next beast, which is the Leviathan. But let's try it as referring to the behemoth. It could be taken in its eyes with traps that pierce the nose. And I think the sense here is that with all of its unparalleled strength, and while the sword is useless again, it, it's still, this behemoth still has two places of vulnerability to a determined hunter. One is through its eyes, and one is through its nose. That is, if you get a hook in there, then you can sort of lead it into captivity. Now, if I'm interpreting this cr- correctly, this certainly cannot be a metaphor uh, for God. And then the question is, what is it a metaphor for? And that's, you know, um, something that we're really not going to be able to decide here. In contrast, the next verse presents the next creature that has no such vulnerability to attackers and hunters. And I think this has to be understood as a question, even though there's no we would have expected but I think that's the sense of it. Uh, that is, you may have been able to ensnare the behemoth 
by the eyes and the nose. And therefore you may think that you have some kind of power that is equal to God's, but can you pull the Leviathan with a snare? Will you subjugate its tongue with cables? If the behemoth was the mightiest of the land creatures, then the Leviathan is the mightiest of the sea creatures, and hence the reference to cables in the tongue, like a fish which is pierced through the mouth with a hook and line to be drawn by these cables. Hatasim agmon Will you put an agmon in its nose or pierce its cheek with a choach? An agmon is a type of river rush, uh, uh, which has a barb shape. So this probably means uh, some kind of steeled trap, which had the shape of an agmon, and therefore it was called an agmon after its barbed shape. So to the choach, which means a thorn or a thistle, so there must have been some kind of metal snare, which looked much like a thorn or a thistle that was used to to hunt for fish, but not the leviathan. Will it, will the leviathan make lots of supplications to you, which means when you come hunting for it, will it plead for mercy? Will it speak in gentle words, which means to avoid being trapped? Obviously, the answer is that the Leviathan couldn't care less when it sees a hunter coming for it, because it has no fear whatsoever. Will it make, uh, will it cut a deal with you, allowing you to take it as an eternal servant? And of course, there's there's this sense of metaphor here that is underlying meanings of a of making a covenant and how it's impossible to make a covenant with this Leviathan and how it will not be a servant. Um, there seem to be multiple levels of meaning and religious levels as well, but I'll just stay at the surface. Will you play with it as you play with a bird? Will you tie it to your youths, which means you plan to make a pet out of it, a pet out of the Leviathan, like put a cord around its neck so your children can lead it along like some kind of dog? So if so, think again. Now verse 30, and Rajvam states specifically uh, that there's a missing Do you really think a company of men can make purchase of it? Will it be divided up among the merchants? Will you be able to make uh, will you be able to load down, fill up its skin with Sukkot, which seems to be some type of small and sharp instrument used for piercing an animal and therefore bringing it under submission? Will you be able to load its head with fish hooks, tziltzal dagim? Either that or you could translate the word Sukkot and tziltzal from the word sail or shade in the sense of places of shelter. Uh, Sukkot, then we'd have to replace the sin with a samach. And then the idea would be, do you think you can make your tents or shelter from its skin? In a, in a, a very a very scorning way, God says to Eov, put your hand over it and you will never remember war anymore, which means that your, any memories that you have of bad times in war will not compare with the kind of troubles that you'll have if you place your hand upon the Leviathan. Uh, more about the Leviathan will come in chapter 41 as the speech continues, so I'll hold off now on speculation of what point God is trying to make to Eov by discussing the impossibility of trapping and snaring a Leviathan. 
Um, but again, we could return to the Ramban's non-Kabbalistic view of it, which means if you can't even handle and trap the behemoth, or if you could just manage to trap the behemoth, but have no power whatsoever against the Leviathan, then how do you expect to do God's tough job, who has much harder things to snare, and how can you therefore accuse God of doing the right or wrong thing when he goes about his business in this world?